Our guest today is a writer, filmmaker, the best Doom Map reviewer on YouTube, and an all-around pleasant guy. Our conversation with Mount Payne 27, Gaming App. When, when, when does it get fun? When does it get fun? Well, we have a lovely guest on today. Perhaps we should ask our lovely guest how things are, what he's been up to, and what he would like to talk about today. Yeah, creator he... of oh. Fractured Worlds, it's uh, Nirvana today. <laughs> <laughs> Introducing Nirvana to a brand new audience. Yeah. Hey folks, I'm Al Payne. Um, I have been slowly trying to reanimate my channel. Um, I recently released a video about secret maps in Doom. Um, and that's actually the video I'm most proud of uh, in a long time, because it's not Dean of Doom. It's not uh, strictly formulaic. It was something a little bit new, and it actually took me over two years to finally put together. So I'm quite happy with how it turned out, and I hope to do more of those in the future. Um, as for when the next one comes out, uh, you know, mark it on your calendars. It could be any time from you know, next week to 2025. So <laughs> no, no promises, no expectations. And uh, the fellows here asked me what I wanted to talk about in terms of video game topics today, and I said, well, nostalgia seems like a good place to start, because I feel like most of the games I play today and have fond memories of now, um, I played or watched people play as a kid. Um, and it's kind of fascinating to me how you can play a game as a kid, enjoy it for kid reasons, and then as an adult fashion retroactively... Uh, really well thought out arguments for why it's actually good when you know provably that it's not and people tell you that it's not um, especially with story uh, I find myself particularly irrational when it comes to liking um, like stories intended for kids even as an adult I kind of have well not kind of I fully have the blinders on in that respect so I'd uh I know we don't always stay on topic in this podcast but uh that's okay and uh, I, that there, that's my blurb. Was that oh, yeah. pretty well? Did you bring <laughs> no. writers? Wow, you should no. host a podcast. How are you so smooth? I feel like you're letting people know how the sausage is made a little bit. Earlier, <laughs> 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 we send the topics out sometimes. <laughs> we're very prepared, you might say. Well, no, I just I'm a I'm a regular viewer. It's, honestly, I do these. I I. I um, accepted these uh, this invitation and Nirvana's previous invitation because it's just wonderful to be able to talk to people who share the same interests as you. That's uh, rarer in this world than you might think, especially when it comes to liking retro video games like Doom. So really niche. Happy to be here. Uh, yeah, it's in, you were you were saying that you like things for child reasons, and then <laughs> when you're an adult, you sort of craft um, reasons why they're sort of still valuable as an adult, but. Uh, one thing that I <laughs> always talk about is, like, Dragon Ball Z. I think it's a very good example of... Because I always say to people, like, I would never recommend this show to anyone to watch if they're an adult. Like, you will get nothing of value <laughs> out of Dragon <laughs> Ball Z, I think. <laughs> oh, you shouldn't get, get anything value out of it. But as a kid, I watched that show, and I loved it. And it has all these, like, big, you know, hype moments like Goku going Super Saiyan for the first time and stuff, and, you know, you just lap that up as a kid. And then, as an adult, I definitely still, like, feel... Uh, I feel those moments as I did when I was a kid. And and it translates to, you know, there's, like, 
a new series called Dragon Ball Super that came out. And I still feel like excited when things happen in that show. But I feel like if I'd watched that show like as a 30 year old man <laughs> from the beginning, <laughs> I would be like, this is dog shit. <laughs> like, there's not much of value to be uh, gained from, from watching this. You send in your investment when you're a kid and it will still pay dividends into adulthood. But if you come into it as an adult, you, you can't make that investment. You know, you can't, you can't become invested in the characters and the plot because there really aren't any of either in that show. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting uh, in, in what Mount Payne wants to talk about as far as that effect happening in, in gaming experiences, because I'm sure we've all had those moments where you're playing something that you loved as a kid and you are loving it in this moment because you loved it as a kid. Pardon me. You're, it's, it's this question of, am I having fun right now? Or am I vividly remembering having had fun with this? And mm-hmm. that's what I'm enjoying. And I think, I think it's an interesting thing to dig into because it's probably just how the human brain works in general. You'll constantly find people digging in and doubling down on an argument that they've obviously lost because they just, they've already decided the side that they've taken. And now they're going to try to form arguments to support that side retroactively. I think that's just kind of the natural state of the human brain a lot of the time. And it's interesting to see that spill over into video games where you think, well, I, this game must be good because I like it. But you think that you like it because it's good, but the opposite is happening and how your bias from childhood can infect that. And this is all to just wax on for way too long about <laughs> why I'm excited to talk about what Mount Payne wants to talk about. I gotta say, I am perfectly okay liking things that other people think are not good. And I'm perfectly okay enjoying things that I know are crappy even myself. Um, it happens less often with, uh, with movies and video games. Um, there are a couple games that, I mean, I'm, you know what? I, I, I might be physically incapable of uh, <laughs> being impartial about stuff I interacted with before the age of 10. Um, Although that's not totally true, because I was going to bring up like the Iron Giant, the movie, is a perfect example of a thing I saw as a kid that I thought was transcendent. I grew up, I watched a lot of other movies, came back to it, and it's still transcendent. Like it's oh, a good. it's a phenomenal Thank animated God. film. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's just one of the best. <laughs> you had <laughs> me so frightened there. <laughs> no, but like I, I think I think the best experience that I can have with a thing that has been touched by nostalgia is to realize that it, it's both. I'm both re-experiencing my joy of, of, you know, the childhood experience and enjoying it for its technical excellence slash just genuinely, you know, heart-tugging uh, content as an adult. When those things are going simultaneously, which it also does with Doom, um, that's, a, that's a tremendous feeling. Yeah, discovering new reasons to, to love it even more. Doom's a perfect example of that, yeah, because nobody who plays it as a kid is understanding the intriguing combat mechanics going on under the hood in mm-hmm. Doom and the, the more interesting aspects of map design. and Or we just didn't have very interesting custom-made wads when we were kids. So you come back as an adult to nostalgically enjoy this game, and then you discover that it has just incredible depth and uh, really tangible rewards for investing the time and getting better at the game. And uh, I love that game to death. I love overanalyzing things, too. I love mm-hmm. that I can have a 15-minute video on YouTube that's probably not very good, but we can just talk about, you know, one monster in that game and 
kind of how to deal with it and different situations that arise from having to deal with it. And Zombie man, you- Gary. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's the next video. You're spoilers, dude. Oh man, You're ruining my upload schedule. But yeah, nobody's thinking about that as a kid. So it's it's also interesting that you could come back and realize that the things you liked as a kid aren't as good as you'd thought. But there's enough new to enjoy and experience and discover that you like it for completely different reasons coming out of it the second time around. I think there's also another thing which ends up being like it's not directly related necessarily, but it get, ends up getting tied into nostalgia where a lot of the time with like video games, like as a kid, you literally and this may I don't know, this may be something that that it won't be as much of a thing anymore with like Steam and people having massive libraries of games that they never play uh, and lots of like free to play games and things like that. But back in the day, like you might've had like, you know, you'd have like a console, like a Nintendo 64 or something, and you might have like two or three games. Uh, and those were the games that you played and, you know, you could go and rent games at Blockbuster or whatever uh, to get new games to play. Or, you know, eventually you might be able to get like a new game for your birthday and stuff like that. Uh, but I think because sometimes like your mum would go out and she would buy a game and this wasn't something you chose, (laughs) she would just randomly pick some game (laughs) or pick a game up from Blockbuster and you would play it. And then it's like, well, this is the game that I'm playing for the foreseeable future. Like you might just be stuck playing that game and then it might not be a particularly amazing piece of work, but, uh because that's all you had to play and you had to sit there and 100 percent it uh there's definitely instances where you end up playing a game that like these days would be considered pretty crappy but you ended up having like a great experience with because that's all there was that's interesting to me in two ways because on, on the one hand you're giving games a more fair shot at winning you over than you would otherwise because you just have to experience basically the entire thing and There's also this angle where you're getting to know something very deeply by, you know, if you're me as a kid, you're playing like Jack and Daxter, the precursor legacy 57 times front to back over and over (laughs) and over again in Pokemon Gold. So then if you don't play that. We're going to be good friends. (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited. Um, Then if you don't play that for 20 years and you go back and play it, the nostalgia is very potent because you knew this just front to back at one point and it's very important to you. Whereas now I kind of wonder, can you even feel nostalgia anymore if you play one game and then you move on to the next and you move on to the next and you play a thousand different games in your childhood, uh, which are the ones that you know intimately and remember the most fondly and have nostalgia for as an adult? I guess if you have a few favorites that you play to death, then sure. But I I just wonder how strong that nostal how strongly, pardon me, that nostalgia is tied to the the depth that you went into on a particular game or if it is only a reflection of how much you liked it. I can pinball off both of your guys' comments with a, a game that I actually, I specifically wanted to plug <laughs> talking to you, because it's a it's a critically underrated RPG that I don't think really anybody knows about. Final um, Fantasy But it came out on PS... Oh, sorry. Yes, that's that's the one. Um, <laughs> no, it's, it came out for PS2, so it's not like it was you know not on shelves or anything. Nirvana, you talked about you know your mom going out and just kind of getting a game. I received Radiata Stories for Christmas the one year. Um, didn't know anything about it. Had just no. I I didn't you know put that on my Christmas list or anything like that. It just kind of appeared. 
Um, I played it, and it was so like not my kind of game, but I liked it anyway because it was it's it's an adventure type RPG game with a lot of story. Um, and the story is extremely silly in the beginning, and then it gets really dark really quickly. Um, and <laughs> to 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 point out uh, to bounce off another point that uh, Sobad mentioned about when you're a kid, you don't understand how games work necessarily. You just get impressions from them. A thing I loved about Radiata Stories was the the way the game played, um, but just like hitting the monsters, not figuring out how things worked or whatever. I I not only didn't know how the game worked, I went all the way to the end of the game without. There's a there's a mechanic where you pick up moves that you can you can do you know sword play actions uh, and 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 chain your combo further and further um, by just you know killing stuff um, and you just pick it up experience points wise or in the same system as getting experience points. I played the entire game with the basic one two hit combo. I did not know how to change up <laughs> my attack pattern. I went all the way to the final boss and just the entire game was going whack whack. Whack, whack, and went back to this as an adult <laughs> and realized that I could have made the game 20 times easier for myself. But I also, and I had this other thing where the game gave you a block function, a block mechanic, where if an enemy charges you, you can just guard and then retaliate. Never guarded. Never, just didn't want to. <laughs> just, I wanted to run straight at the boss, deal as much damage as I could before he knocked me over, heal when he did damage to me, and just like, I was the biggest bonehead. Um, but as an adult, when I replayed it, it gave me, it was like, wow, you know, this game was actually more, more complex than I thought. I thought it was a really simple hack and slash game that I was enjoying the story and music in, um, when in fact it was a lot easier than I thought. And um, because with that guard function, you can parry even, you know, characters and monsters that are way above your level and survive fights that you have no right to, um, unless you're a dumb kid and you just run straight at it and whack things until they die so i just wanted to, to illustrate that radiata stories is the perfect example of a game that i'm fiercely nostalgic for i had other options of games to play at the time but it was the one that captivated my imagination for six to twelve months um oh, wow. and that i still think back on uh today uh and that was just off the shelf from a video like my parents have no concept of video games really they just grabbed something that looked interesting and the game itself isn't very popular, like, or isn't very widely played, but it has a, a cult fan base, um, that, uh, that, to my knowledge, anyway. That's such a funny story. When I was a kid and I got Pokemon Gold, I played it until I finished it, and then I turned the Game Boy off, turned it back on, started a new game, played another save file over and over and over and over again for years. And, but by finishing the game, for the first few months that I had it, I would play up until after the seventh gym when you would have to go through the ice path to get to Blackthorn City. And I couldn't figure out how to get through the ice path. So I would just end my playthrough there and start the game again. <laughs> That's such a kid <laughs> thing that. to do. Oh, I did that for months. And I would, I would meet people who also liked Pokemon Gold, because who doesn't? You're all kids. But when they go, yeah, 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 I love Pokemon Gold, I'd go, oh my god, where are the ice skates? I just assumed there was some key item I didn't have that would get me through the path. I didn't realize it was a little uh, just pathing puzzle about which directions to push and when. And, you know, when I finally figured it out, suddenly this whole late game and Elite Four is unlocked for me. And I thought, oh, my God, this is the best game ever. And then I went in my playthroughs after the Elite Four. 
and start a new game, not realizing that you could go to Kanto after that. And there was a whole post game sequence. Wow. So I just being an idiot, dumbass kid, uh, I played that game for years and it was kind of like three different games over the course of it. But yeah, now that's something that if I go back to as an adult, I would probably have supreme nostalgia for because I just lived it for so long. But I, I have no I couldn't be objective. Like you said, I, I don't know if that's actually as good of a game as I would swear it is, because when I crunch the numbers on it, it doesn't seem like it. Right, there's like no good fire type Pokemon to get it all. Right, <laughs> I crunch numbers sometimes. It's what I do. It's you still, I think it would still be a pretty fun experience to play. Yeah, it's probably. I'll stand up for Pokemon Gold. Um, it's just hard to know. Just uh, to bounce off Mount Payne's uh, point a little bit, it's interesting because I think there are instances when you're a kid when you play a game and it's like really difficult. And then you come back as an adult and you're like, oh, like I know how to play video games now. And this yes. is actually oh incredibly God. easy. That uh, sentence resonates with me so much, dude. <laughs> I can't even tell you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so bad mentioned Jack and Daxter. I didn't have as much trouble with that. Um, although I remember the lava tube and fire canyon being pretty tough. Um, Jack 2 has a, there's a lot of notorious missions in Jack 2, but. The one that I got stuck on for like multiple weekends of video game time, just one sequence of like three jumps on this. These little creatures are powering zeppelins that go back and forth over lava, and you have to jump. They have like little swinging bars underneath them, and you have to jump from one bar to the next bar to the other ledge. I tried this <laughs> hundreds of times, and it, and it was the most annoying thing because it was like a one minute sequence to get back to those to the, to the to that jump, and it would be like I'm just having a panic attack before each attempt because I'm like I'm gonna lose another minute of my life. Um, and then I went back, and it's like, oh, you can just wait until you get close to the second bar, and then press the X button, and you'll jump off and land on the. I was trying to like jump midair and catch the. It was horrible. I can't even explain what I did, but it was. <laughs> My brother watched me replay that mission as an adult, and he's like, "Yeah, you were like, um, you were like convulsing. You were so mad over this, and and no one knew why. <laughs> no one knew why you didn't just do it like a normal person." Oh my god! So yes, the I'm an adult, and now I'm decent at video games uh, is such a relevant sentiment to me. I've played the shit out of Jack Two, and the part you're describing must be so inconsequential because I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> Exactly. I'm like, what do you even say? But like having to race <laughs> Errol, uh, oh yeah, that one. I mean, I those ring challenges. Oh, brutal! I those kicked my ass as a kid. I hated that part of the game. I would like get to that part of the game and go. I guess I'm done my Jack Two playthrough. <laughs> I yeah. don't want to race Errol. <laughs> For anyone who's oh, played man. Banjo uh, Tui, nice Mary Canary is all I will say. But uh, it's the same thing. We have to race a character, but it's literally had to get like a pen and rub it on the button to get enough speed because you have to press one wow. button like over and over again uh practically like destroyed a nintendo 64 controller just because <laughs> like i don't know how you're physically meant to push the button that quickly especially as a child uh, on that shitty controller <laughs> mm -hmm. but like it has like three levels of difficulty i think and you get like because those games are massive collectathons that you get like a different collectible item each time. I think you get a Jiggy the first time, and then the other two times it's like just random crap to collect. Uh, There's always some random 
mini game in that in that era of games that you would get to that you either just wouldn't have the skill set for as a kid or it was just unbalanced bullshit as the worst part of the game and for they always found a way to like be completely mandatory <laughs> you, you couldn't just skip it <laughs> i don't know what the fascination was with those but it could be any, like you could be playing Spyro the Dragon and then you have to do like a boxing mini game at some point. And it's just why is this in here? It's so weird. I can't yeah. remember that one was hard, though, but Banjo-Tooie, that's a that's a brave statement to me because that game is so giga popular and I haven't heard anybody complain about that part of the game before. Oh, so everybody if... hates Mary Canary. It's like a meme oh, if okay. you look in. Uh, I don't know. I feel like if there's like a Banjo speed run or something, everyone hates it. I think it was kind of then. <laughs> but uh i mean i love that i think i i may be one of the few people who likes banjo tooie a bit more than banjo kazooie to be honest which is i know a blow to everybody but <laughs> i might have to edit that out i don't know if we can leave that in <laughs> but yeah banjo kazooie had a mini game where you have to you're a little crocodile like you turn into a crocodile uh i don't know if no one's played the game i can't be bothered explaining it uh and you have to eat these unfortunately little... that Sorry, what were you saying? No, that wasn't part of my childhood, unfortunately, but it sounds interesting. Yeah, so you turn into this crocodile, you have to, like, verse this other little crocodile, and you have to eat these little vegetables, and it's like a minigame that you have to do uh, with escalating difficulty. And the third round of that, <laughs> I found it really difficult uh, to do. Uh, it was awful, and then, like, finally beat it or whatever. And then years later, I realized... When I came back, there's a power up you can get that give it's like running shoes and it makes you way faster. And you can just use those uh and it makes it trivial. <laughs> and I did it the way that they do it in the speed run. Like the current world record speed run is how that's how they do it. Uh so I'm pretty good at that mini game these days. Wow. There's a mini game in, in Jack and Daxter where you're just catching some fish. You only do it one time. Oh yes, the fisherman. That's yeah. the famous part. As a kid. I just could not do that. It was so frustrating. I just wouldn't get that power cell. But I came back as an adult a few years ago, and I played that part of the game, and it's effortless. It's so easy. Yeah, it's it's really like, not too bad. did I not have fingers as a child? Yeah. <laughs> what happened here? It's just one. There's definitely a hand-eye coordination thing going on with those fish. They get faster and faster, and you can only move one direction or the other, and it's the speed of the net versus the speed of the fish, and prioritizing. You, you mentioned in a in a message to me so bad the human brain is terrible it might add uh, uh what do you call it uh multitasking that is incredibly true especially with video games <laughs> yeah, actually i had that uh you you had mentioned that my january game that i made that's kind of super dog shit but there's that part oh. where you're your little character. I your... won't let that pass it's not dog shit i enjoyed it <laughs> <laughs> it's okay for a free game i guess but there's that uh, part where you're controlling your little guy and you're dodging the crowd. You're trying not to arrest anybody who isn't suspicious, but you're trying to run into the people who are dressed appropriately. And uh, that whole sequence, when I was stuck for like, what's the next minigame in this game? It was the Jack and Daxter fishing game that I thought of. And I was like, wow. I kind of want that energy. And that's where that whole idea spawned from was like, what if I did Jack and Daxter fishing? But like, it was really hard to know what fish to catch. <laughs> <laughs> I needed all my Jack and Daxter fishing skills to get through that last round. It's I'm so grateful to you for um, making each like wave relatively distinct. Like you gave me a couple save spots. If I had to go from the from the bottom round to the top every time, I don't think I would have beat that game. 
Yeah, in the beta test, there were no checkpoints in that sequence. Oh, God. People <laughs> were just straight up swearing at me while they were <laughs> testing it. It was so funny. Oh, man. I feel like the big, like, topic these days with nostalgia, though, is, like, reboots, right? Like... Yes. And, well, it's interesting, because we're talking about how games are easier when they came back. I remember they had, like, this port of Perfect Dark that they brought to uh, Xbox Arcade. And it was, like... I mean, it was a fantastic port. It was really good. Had really good controller support. Uh, and it just felt so nice to play that game on Joolstick compared to the shitty Nintendo 64 controls that it originally had. Uh, and obviously, when I played it, because there's all these cheats, like cheat codes you can unlock in Perfect Dark for anyone who hasn't played it, it's the same as GoldenEye, so if you've played that, you'll understand. But it's usually like a little a speed run of, of one of the maps is what you have to do to, to unlock the cheat, like beat it in a certain amount of time. And some of them are a massive pain in the ass, like really annoying. Like the better the cheat is the harder it'll be so like invulnerability mm. is like awful and invisibility was also like really difficult and obviously when i came back and i played this it was really easy to do because i was much older but also uh the control scheme was just vastly superior so obviously like when you have a reboot now it's like a completely different experience but still uh and and reboots these days are I mean, completely different anyway. Like, something like Resident Evil 2 Remake, they, they change a lot of stuff, uh, but still, like, keep the core elements intact. And then other ones are just complete garbage where they <laughs> where they change all of the best elements uh, or they're very cash-grabby. I feel like there are so many different reboot experiences that you can have these days that it's interesting like you may not even have a nostalgic feeling because the game is so different a lot of the time uh and then other times they do a good job of like tapping into it oh that's interesting i sometimes find myself wondering why we're doing these remakes like they'll do a play you can get the jack and the jack trilogy on playstation 4 or something like that and it's money <laughs> from a consumer about, um, perspective you're buying it what what are you getting out of it you know what about if you if your ps2 is old and broken or whatever and you just don't have access to it anymore because I, I i played um jack and daxter on ps4 um i had that bundle because i just my ps2 was not um where i was um and it was nice to have it to, to access it it had some issues and it didn't look all that different and it didn't play any different as far as i know um that didn't feel like a reboot or anything so much as a like a reporting. Um, so I can see accessibility for for just a, a, a direct let's get it from PS2 to a new console uh, being just convenient. Yeah. Or bring... Sorry for the motorcycles passing by. I'm right next to my street. That's all right. Are you outside? <laughs> no. Are you on the motorcycle? Yes, I just went by. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see an argument for that. And I can see an argument for bringing it to a new audience who... Mm wouldn't have heard of it otherwise, wouldn't have played this old crusty game, but now it's like a marketing opportunity to say, hey, here's a great game, and you can get it now, and it's got a new coat of paint. But I just see that more as like a better argument for uh, emulation and preserving game history, and it would just be nice if we could play all these old titles without you know, having a company come along and like make some bloated remaster of it that you have to pay full price for. I totally agree. I'd much rather play Jack and Daxter on a port. 
than on the PS4. I just didn't know where to find it. It's yeah. difficult there because I think they do do it well sometimes, like, or it feels like a positive thing. Like Wind Waker HD, for instance, uh, the Wii wasn't, or whatever. No, the GameCube obviously wasn't HD, it was standard def, and then they brought it to uh, the Wii U and were able to actually make it HD. And, it, like, the graphical improvement isn't, like, immense, but it makes that game look so much nicer. And it's, like, a really nice experience playing it uh, yeah. like that. And then, yeah, like I was saying, I mean, you have these other reboots. Like, Resident Evil 2 Remake is, a, I think, probably one of the best ways you can do one of these reboots if you're going to do it. Because it brings enough new elements to it that it's still interesting. Uh, and it's like a full graphical update. Like, it looks like, you know, a new generation title completely. It's not just, like, slightly upgraded graphics. So you actually get something new out of the experience, but you tap into that nostalgia too. Uh, and then <laughs> Capcom decided to do one of the worst kind of remakes, which was Resident Evil 3, which <laughs> is like, oh, well, we already have this engine that we built for Resident Evil 2. Let's make Resident Evil 3 and get it out as quickly as possible. And it's like, you know, let's let's also put it out for like full, full price. And then it's like, a f it's like a four hour game or something and you pay like $80. It's, uh, yeah, so, you know, it could go either way. You could also do the Final Fantasy VII remake route and make like three games out of an old game, uh, completely reimagine it. I, I never played Final Fantasy VII. I didn't grow up with it or anything like that. But I can just, I can feel the the simmering rage of the purists every time that is mentioned, the new one uh, in the public eye. Because that will attract a new, a completely new crowd of players because it plays like a modern Final Fantasy game. It's like a branch of whatever number they're on now. Um, 50, I think. But the splitting it... <laughs> but the splitting it into multiple parts seemed like the scummiest thing to me because the game itself i watched my ex play it for 12 hours something like that that they could have just been a very long game that they took a while to make but instead they're giving it to us in 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 small chunks like a, like a mini series uh which is not really i think a very good way to uh put out your games i wonder if it i mean it can't be only greed but it definitely does sound very greedy but i wonder if it's just you're upscaling stuff so much and you can only, you know, reasonably fit so many of these assets in one download and you reach a point where you think we got to split this up into a couple games. It could be it's just too big. Probably not. I, I think mean, they like... also go ahead. I think they're also padding out the story considerably with kind of nonsense missions and collectibles and things like that. It's definitely like there's definitely an avarice element there, um, although it's it's interesting because like it's it, it kind of it's it's more a translation of the original text and an expansion than it is a remake because it is a remake but it's they're adding so much of the new like the new director i think was a character artist on the original game um it's the same guy who headed up the kingdom hearts franchise which of course there's like 90 kingdom hearts and they're never going to stop making those games so i think he brought his kingdom hearts philosophy of let's milk this for all it's worth and on ma as many ports as possible <laughs> into the final fantasy verse which is already <laughs> <laughs> Let's make an endless number of games and ironically title them um, every time uh, for, until the end of time. Yeah, I thought it was <laughs> kind of weird that uh, Goofy showed up like halfway through. <laughs> you got the rights, You're you got to use fight Sephiroth and he's like, hey, Cloud. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I could never play fucking Kingdom Hearts, because if Goofy ever showed up on my screen, I would have to switch it off. <laughs> 
Like, <laughs> this game is hilarious to me. Gorsh, dude. I know, but I'm a, I'm a pretty devout Kingdom Hearts one advocate purely for nostalgia reasons. If I didn't, if that game didn't catch me at eight years old, I would, I would, <clears throat> I would laugh it out of every room. Well, this, that it appeared in with me. that game, that game and franchise seems like the perfect sort of franchise. Like, like I haven't played them obviously, but from the outside looking in, they seem like the perfect topic of discussion for what you're saying. Where it's like, yes, all these people play Kingdom Hearts as a kid and they loved it, and then they've seen the series through based on those initial feelings or whatever. But I just can't imagine coming in as a thirty-year-old man and being able to no. accept. <laughs> Uh, that Goofy is there. And, and that would be unthinkable. <laughs> and, and further, your original feelings about that game could have been kind of unfairly bolstered by a nostalgia about these old Disney characters. Oh, absolutely. It's a double whammy. It's a fountain baby. of nostalgia. Yeah. <laughs> They're hitting you from both ends. I just it's like, what do you mean? I get to I get to walk around with with Aladdin, and I get to fight Maleficent. That's amazing. You know, yeah. like that was definitely a double whammy as a kid. And Mickey's me. there. He's all like, "Bah!" and all that shit. It's crazy. <laughs> you get true, psyched, yeah. dude. <laughs> I just I I kind of do want to go in. Like I had uh, sort of played with the idea of streaming uh, Kingdom Hearts because I thought it would be really funny. Because I would hate every second of it. <laughs> <laughs> it would be very funny. <laughs> and I would watch the hell out of that. Because it's like you can't really get more like clarity than I've never played Kingdom Hearts before. I'm over the age of 30. Let's let's see what this what effect this has on me. Um, it's just it's totally different from when you're a kid. You just kind of that's that's the definite that's, that's the perfect game for me to talk about in terms of nostalgia because it just it washed over me and it. It, it it totally just embra- I embraced it and it embraced me and it's just it's deeply in the fabric of uh, what I consider not not what I consider good gaming but it's like it, it was a seminal childhood moment for me playing that game. Um, now I will say another thing I wanted to mention about nostalgia is that for me personally is that it's intimately tied up in music. Uh, music that I listened to as a kid is just will will never leave me. And Kingdom Hearts happens to have an excellent score written by Yoko Shimomura. Um, that I that I would defend as as still really good. Um, the plot, no. <laughs> the gameplay, no. But like, as I, I can be impartial about that because it's so glaringly obvious that it's just it's a kids game. It's for kids. Um, the music though that gets under my skin that keeps me that keeps reinvoking um, those those memories I had as a kid. Um, I don't know. I just think music is pretty critical to the nostalgia uh, formula. Yeah, and we have all heard that you know that thought that your your taste in music is cemented in your teens. You know, you hit like seventeen or something, and whatever your favorite band is, that'll be your favorite band for the rest of your life, and you'll be so convinced that that's good music, and you see that so commonly, <laughs> and it's interesting. I wonder why that is i know there's you know the heightened emotions playing into it at that age and and things of that nature but i it's so it's the exact thing we're talking about actually yeah because i i, I mean my favorite band in the world is the tragically hip and just by sheer coincidence i got into them in my teens so it's like are they that good or do i just think they're that good because i was very emotionally unstable when i was introduced to them you know and how do you sever that connection and look at things objectively is it even possible 
but it's interesting that yeah i feel i don't know i like obvi- like obviously i will still like nirvana is obviously my was my favorite band when i was younger hence the name uh for everyone <laughs> who was wondering uh big reveal yeah but uh <laughs> but like yeah, i has don't this come out before have we established <laughs> this I don't actually know if I if I've mentioned it before. Some because I guess it's either this or you know, uh, Buddhism. Those are really my only two options. Yes, it's um, so funny to me because if it wasn't a band, but or like a Dune person, Dune Twenty One. Oh, that's that's true. It could have been that. If it was a person, it would be so funny. If you're like, "What's my gamer tag?" and then you were like, mm, "Britney Spears," you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're just like stuck with that forever. But for some reason, because it's the name of the group, it it works as a as a gamer tag, and I I don't find it weird. But it'd be so funny if you were just like ah Paul Anka, that will be my yeah, my gamer. Well, some tag. people do that, and it's uh, it's funny. <laughs> it's hilarious. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Nirvana's good though. It's a good group. To to your point there. Well, yeah, they're still. I still think they're a great band. Obviously. But I don't listen to them as much as I did when I was a teenager. Like, mm. for me, well, Nirvana is interesting because I think, like, I was obviously very interested in Kurt Cobain as a person, and I got very invested in all that kind of stuff. But a lot of his big thing was, like, talking about other bands that influence him. Like, he was more interested in the bands that influence his music than he was, like, his own music. So through him, I found, like, you know... I was like, oh, now I got to listen to like Scratch Acid and the Germs and all these like really weird little like punky groups that they listen to. And then Daniel Johnston. No. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> wait, is that Silverchair? Daniel Johnston? Uh, no, the, I think he was the subject of the movie The Devil and Daniel Johnston. He was uh, he made a very humble. Uh, it's, I think it's a little Martian creature on his cassette album cover. And uh, Cobain wore his shirt. And uh, oh, got okay. Some- Visibility. Okay. Well, now I have to find out who. Hold on, let me find out the silver chair guy's name. Oh no, <laughs> we've been blockaded. Daniel Johns. We'll never recover from this. Okay, Daniel Johns. Oh, it is close. Oh wow, that's close. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm not a fool, everybody. He okay. probably really <laughs> liked Daniel Johnston, and he was like, going forward, my name <laughs> yeah. will be Daniel Johns. Yeah, but like so, and then you know, I got into the Pixies and all this stuff, and then. I was definitely somebody who was like, oh, this is, like, real music or whatever, which I think comes with the territory of, like, in grunge and, like, all that kind of music, punk and stuff. Mm-hmm. But then as I've gotten older, uh, I've become much more open to other music. Uh, you know, like, I feel like through through listening to that stuff, I then got into, like, Bob Dylan and all folk music, and then I got into, like, indie folk stuff, and then, you know, it was kind of like a... A constant work in progress in terms of that stuff and then these days i listen to literally anything like i listen to tons of pop i got heavily into hip-hop as well like uh, uh i don't know like later into my teens um so like kendrick lamar and stuff has been huge for me uh and obviously there's like bands like they were still very important to me but it's difficult to say whether i still think those are like the greatest music ever or whatever like i wouldn't consider myself very uh stuck in my ways in terms of music yeah your your taste in music is is always a work in progress until you discover the tragically hip and then you're done you can stop there they're fine can you say that again uh so bad i've I missed that the first two times the, the tragically happen the tragically hip 
The Tragically Hip. Yeah. I've got to look that up now. It's a it's a very Canada-centric band. They never made it big anywhere else, and none of us can understand why, because they're fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's uh-huh. Colin Mockery uh, on drums. Yep, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. And Ryan Reynolds. Wayne Gretzky, uh, lead guitar. <laughs> yep, and, uh, and Mackenzie King is a uh, Too manager. Canadian of a reference, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely... So I, I de- I definitely hope my musical tastes don't like cement from my 13-year-old, 14-year-old self, which I have heard that if you um play the music that uh folks in the nursing home heard when they were 13, they perk up even if they've lost their memory and stuff. Yeah. Um, they'd have to play Metallica for me, which I mean, like I had like seven Metallica songs on on rotation. I didn't even own any Metallica albums. I just Got specific recommendations from one Metallica uh, <laughs> fan friend and listened to like one, The Unforgiven, Enter Sandman. Oh, the classics. Uh, All Nightmare Long from Death Magnetic for some reason. Uh, Fade to Black, uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls, a few of those. And it's like, that didn't really shape my musical personality or my personality personality. It was just angst time. Like, that's all I used those for. <laughs> I am loving um, the mental image right now of like an old folks home and, you know, very extensive dementia patients and then you just start playing like master of puppets just... oh yeah that was another one <laughs> That's just... i like that image too oh man just trying to talk to grandpa and he's just blasting master master <laughs> <laughs> well it's interesting because music is kind of gonna like that's got the same thing going for it that like we talked about earlier i guess where it's when we were younger uh and I feel like for us, even, we were starting to move into, like, being able to download music and stuff, so before that, even, it was like, well, you bought a couple of albums, like, you had to go out and physically buy an album, and then you listened to that whole album, and that's how you sort of experienced music from that band, but, and I used to be, like, avid about, I'm downloading, like, if I downloaded music, I would download full albums, and I would listen to yes, the me full too. album, like, constantly, but these days... I just, I have Spotify, I just like, you know, I'll add songs that I like to this big playlist that I have. And a lot of people I know who also used to listen to albums pretty strictly, they do the same thing, where it's experiencing things as singles, which, uh, like, if you if you listen to a full album, it has a very different experience, and I still do it occasionally, like, I feel like, like, with Kendrick Lamar, whenever he releases a new album i always listen to that like start to finish um because he tends to like craft a story that weaves through so you get like a specific experience and i remember like listening to dinosaur jr and stuff back in the day i always used to listen to like their albums all the way through uh but i feel like people consume stuff so differently now and it applies to games it applies to music it applies to film tv shows TV shows are all binge-watched, they're not watched week-to-week anymore. And and a lot of this means, I think, like we were saying with the video games, like, so bad how you played Pokemon Gold and you played that for years, because that was one of the several games <laughs> that you owned <laughs> that, were, that were good enough for you to play for that long. Um, and it means, I think, that these days... And this won't be true for everybody, obviously. Some people will still be having that same experience, but I think you'll end up with a lot of people where they don't have the nostalgia rooted into, all these memories rooted into, like, 
as many different points in their life, like a, a game or, or an album or uh, a TV show won't be like part of a large enough section of their childhood or their teenagehood or whatever for them to have like maybe gotten as deep roots uh, as they might have if they'd sort of experienced that thing 10 years ago. Wait, so you think that you need to spend an ex- like an extensive amount of time with something to kind of have a deep connection with that thing? No. You, you don't think it works the other way around? You don't think that, um, cause I'm, I, I, I can picture my teenage years or my early twenties or my childhood as a, a pastiche of a lot of different media. Um, I, I don't think it makes any difference whether you can, whether people are consuming things in smaller bites or from more sources. I think it's just gonna be more, uh, mosaic like their impression of a certain time or place and any one thing from any specific time or place can evoke really strong memories in people who engage deeply with things i think that as long as there are people who engage deeply with uh <laughs> their environment and uh the things they consume uh there's still there's still hope for uh profound nostalgic influences yeah i buy oh, that. Yeah. that was my question earlier was is it is it just how uh, enjoyable or profound the experience is, or is it you know the amount of time you spent with it, or some factor of both? But I'm definitely willing to believe that you could play a game for half an hour, and it's just such a such an important moment in your life for maybe even a, a reason beyond the game that you're playing at that moment that it just cements it within you as a nostalgic experience. Later, you can come back and be like, "Oh my god, I remember this, and I remember how I felt at the time." You know, you could. The first time you played a small game could be like the moment that the same day that your you know parents told you as a kid that they were you know going to end up getting divorced or something, and it's just you just remember playing that game to uh, to kind of process that for that one night, and so that could stand out very prominently without needing that that uh, long time investment. But I like this idea of it becoming more of this multifarious thing, of this mosaic of all of these experiences, and you think back to a time of your life. And it's a collection of games that you played and a collection of bands and artists that you listen to without it needing to be, you know, like how I would spend my summer vacation as a kid where I just played Dark Cloud for nine weeks. And and that's it. That was my summer vacation, you know. So it's like I've got a shortcut to nostalgia with that game. But uh, I don't really have any reason to believe that that would be any less prominent with somebody who had a more varied gaming experience over their summer break as a kid because they had more options and i'm yeah, worried well, that i'll become a curmudgeon otherwise you know like i'm just getting old <laughs> yeah like, i definitely wasn't saying uh i definitely wasn't saying it's like a bad thing or anything like uh yeah i was just noting that i think it it's probably gonna be a bit different uh for like hmm. people growing up now uh, i think just because of the way we consume media these days you know, because, yeah. like, the the week-to-week experience of TV and stuff is very different. Like, if you think about Game of Thrones, that was, like, one of the few shows that existed as a week-to-week experience everyone was going through at the same time. Like, this big global communal kind of experience, which obviously ended in a big pile of shit. But, uh... <laughs> Glad we're Things here. are hard, to be safe, to be fair. <laughs> and things are very hard. Not if you stick with the guy, the mastermind behind the source material. Oh, enough. man, let's let's not get into Game of Thrones here, but... Yeah. Big pile of shit I, at I, the I, end there, let's be real. See, I, I've buried my feelings about Game of Thrones a long time ago, so it's best not to dig them up. 
<laughs> it's funny because I <laughs> maybe they'll have its own little uh moment for everybody in history just because everyone that I talk to is just extremely fucking mad whenever you bring that show up. They're just like, <laughs> please don't talk to me about that show. I was having a good day until you mentioned Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everyone's just collectively pissed at these two idiots. That's so funny. I never saw it. And I'm weirdly proud of that now. I feel like you I... actually, yeah, you, you dodged a bullet kind of because yeah. you didn't invest heavily in something for seven years and then had it crap out on you. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to ask you about something you said right, way back at the start where you had mentioned that, you know, you love a game for nostalgic reasons and you don't care to find out later that it was bad and you're not going to let other people's opinions change your feelings about uh, that experience. And what I'm wondering is, are you still interested in the why behind the thing that makes it bad in a more measurable way? Or do you, do you not care at all? There's no interest in finding out kind of what's going on under the hood. It's enough for you that you enjoy it for what it is. What, what, how do you approach that thinking? Hmm. Well, um, I think I would stop investigating why it's bad when it started to affect how much I enjoyed it. Um, and I think that I'm actually more interested in the, the, the psychology of something like why I like TNT Evolution so much, because everybody says it's crappy. It's clearly the worst IWAD. It's not even as good as Plutonia. Um, and yet I love it and will make all kinds of, like, I can, I, I can't really defend a couple of its maps, but there are maps that people, that people a few, a few prominent maps that, uh, people don't like that I like a whole lot. And, um, I wouldn't say I'm opposed to examining why people think they're crappy, because let's take Mount Payne, for example. People talk about that sewer section and the silly disaster area texture and how many imps there are and how tedious the outdoor section is and how there's not enough health at the beginning and how it's kind of drab and too dark. And I kind of, I don't want to say I'm deaf to those complaints because I, I say, yeah, I can see where you're coming from. That doesn't dull in the slightest how much I like that map, how much I enjoy rushing through it at top speed um, for a 40th time. And beating it just to get that, just to get a little tiny grain of that thrill of, oh, the, the, the doors are open and I can see outside and there's a big scary red sky and Lost Souls are cruising out at me and this is overwhelming. You know, I think like I, I will, I will um, take great pains to protect the sanctity of that, that good experience that I had at the beginning. Like I really don't like. Um, I, I don't like threatening that with logic. <laughs> um, not to say that I don't think that there are any good things about Mount Payne in the real world, because I, 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 I do. Um, but most of those things are tied up in that first experience. I mean, Doom is a, a really particular example, though, of how it went from nostalgia for the game making me want to play it as a 13-year-old again, and then just really hating Doom for a while, but being addicted to it like for many years on and off um, because it was just too hard for me. It was, it was kind of a played on keyboard for a while and I just had to hack my way through it and take death after death and just didn't really know how to play the game well. And then I finally made a breakthrough and it's one of the first games where I went from I'm nostalgic about it. It's the only reason I'm playing it to I really hate this game and I wish I could stop playing it to 
now that I finally can step back and appreciate the whole picture, it's a incredibly precious game to me. Because I've been through periods where I really don't like it, and it's I can see all its faults and its bullshit. I can, you know, I I really, I used to play Final Doom habitually, really. It was weird. Both with Tony and TNT. So I just got good enough at it to, yeah, because I didn't really (laughs) care about (laughs) it. I I didn't get Ultimate Doom. I didn't play any Ultimate Doom until 2019, I think. Um, That was the last one. I played them in reverse chronological order. Um, But anyway, I'll quit rambling. That's just, uh, that's my spiel on your, an answer to your very excellent question. I mean, I find that fascinating and, and completely foreign as a way of thinking mm. i i wish you'd continue talking about it so i mean hypothetically just for fun if i to make sure i understand you if let's you know you love mount pain if i mm. were to come up to you and i said hey so don't ask how but i i had an ai algorithm crunch the numbers on this and it solved objectively to a point that everyone on earth would agree when they read it that this is the the true truth that that map is the worst map in all of Doom ever made. Here's the explanation. You would you would opt out of reading that. You'd go. I no, don't actually, if I'd be fascinated to read it. And okay. If he- hearing the news from you, hearing that preamble, I would then become proud that I like it. Interesting. Okay. Wow. Is that just coming from the fact that? you can find joy from a source other than objective truth do you feel that you're mm. in a unique team all on your own liking that map where's where's the pride coming from there it's definitely the second one i when when it comes to video games i well the way i i intake doom is a lot like the way i would watch a movie today i i do kind of um i see it as somewhat of an art an experience of artistic engagement with there's a creator um there's a period where i absorb it and then i think about it and then it kind of gets logged in my memory banks so my preference in doom maps is a lot like my preference in movies and if there's something that i can find you know in a movie that nobody else really seems to get a great example which i inherited this from my dad by the way but the movie joe versus the volcano critically panned Mm -hmm. uh not widely watched but not you know loved has accrued a better reputation over time but it's still not like on a lot of people's top 100 movies of all time Whereas for me, it holds incredible significance because it's an important movie to my dad. It's an important movie to my family. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I kind of inherited it. Like, it became important to me. And I am really all about, like, one of the most important things to me in life is individuality. Um, unless it's, I mean, because it, it doesn't really have a negative effect on anybody to like a movie nobody likes. It's not going to, like, it's not, not going to make your life worse to like a bad movie so it's not like it's a self-destructive behavior and it's not a contrarian position either because i'm not liking it because other people don't like it i just like it i don't i i'm never i try to never be willfully contrarian uh, I, I i i sorry go ahead oh i was it's a, the, the layer to that that i think pulls me away is if you are interested in creating that thing that you're enjoying. If it's a movie and you want to be a writer or director, if it's a Doom wad and you want to make Doom mm. maps, I would be concerned and suspicious of myself if I was really gung-ho about something that everybody hated. And I would think, just in that really? circumstance, if I want really? to be a good writer who appeals to people, I need to understand uh. why people aren't liking this, and I should probably 
reach a point at some point where I can recognize what's not to like about it. And maybe to the point that it hurts my opinion of it, and maybe that's a good thing if it helps me to connect with people uh, better in future. I think that's what's scratching at the back of my brain. I think when... personally you need to get to a point where you can separate what might be, and I use the term loosely, objective, like about a map or a film or whatever, and then you need to have that juxtaposed with your subjective opinion. I don't think you Absolutely. should be trying to suggest that those two things intermingle necessarily. I, yeah, like, definitely not my intent. Well, I just mean you shouldn't be... I don't think one should really... One should it can inform the other, but it doesn't have to. Like, I think... Like, this speaks to nostalgia and all these things too. <laughs> it's like this old movie, Drop Dead Fred, that I really like, which nobody will have seen, probably. Uh, but it has an actor, Rick Mail, in it, who I liked from other stuff as a kid, and he was in it. And I really liked that movie. I thought it was really funny. And we watched it, like, me and my siblings all watched it together. And that movie also, like, pretty critically panned. But I would, ne I would never be like, I think this is, like, objectively a perfect film <laughs> or something, you know? <laughs> sure. There's no part of me that's trying to, like, be prescriptive with my enjoyment of the film to other people it's just i enjoy this film for these reasons and and they're entirely separate from how it's built as a film i guess all i'm saying is that it's easier to avoid doing something bad or that everybody hates if you also dislike it it's hard to just remember as you're writing oh i shouldn't do this because audiences audiences don't like when you do this Etc. It's much easier to not do something because you go, "Oh, I'm not going to do that. I hate that." So if there well, if there's a learning process behind why these things aren't effective, and you can start to kind of find yourself sharing that opinion, then it's it's a it's a useful shortcut to avoiding things that would otherwise kind of tank your work. As so far you're as saying to goes. force yourself to hate things that you like is no. Sorry, what was Mount Payne going to say? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm so curious as to like I I totally understand being focused on how people are going to react to a thing you create. But I definitely started on the side of the tracks where if you don't like what I wrote, fuck you. <laughs> That's That has been the prevailing attitude for most of my life. I have reeled that back considerably, but I think it's easier to start on that side of the tracks if you're an artistic person because I think it's hard to rein in like your... When, when when you're and I'm not uh, I should clarify there's a I could go a million different directions from here but the main thing I want to clarify is that I'm not trying to say fuck you by writing anything I, that's not where I start what I start with is my north star there's something I I I mean it's it's in it's in your heart ideally or in or in your mind or somewhere both and you follow it wherever it leads if you have an idea that you that resonates with you you write it down you stick with it you use it later um. If somebody tells you that idea isn't going to pan out uh, commercially, that's when you say fuck you. Because then, <laughs> then you're not, because I think it's so critical to be, to have a, a, an inner self that at very least you can take stock of, I like these things, I'm secure in liking these things, and it's okay if nobody else does. Not so much that other people don't get it, it's just it's okay that I like these things and other people don't. That, that's incredibly important to me. 
Now, the, the, dis- the distinction I had to make in my late teens and early 20s was I started veering in the direction of, I like these things because other people don't, which is not being true to yourself. It's surveying your surroundings, your, your media environment, the, the, the broader <laughs> um, sphere of opinion, and trying to be contrarian or special or hipster or any number of things. Um, that's a lot of work and pretty pointless because it doesn't actually nourish you. Um, what nourishes you is being able to go into anything, a doom map, a movie, a book, a song, and go, I hope I like this. And if you do, let yourself. If you don't, that's okay. Um, and then just kind of collect things that you like and do and see more of them. That's, that's kind of how I try to live nowadays. It, it's not really quite that simple especially when other folks get involved and especially when you're writing for an audience. Um, but yeah, no, I just, I couldn't imagine writing a script that's kind of weird, kind of off, off, uh, off the wall and thinking, ah, this might not, that third act just doesn't, it doesn't leave the audience feeling good. And most people like to feel good when they leave a movie. I, I better rewrite it to make it happier. Like that would just, that would feel very wrong to me. Very unnatural. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And I, I won't make the mistake of thinking that you're, uh, trying to say that that's what I'm saying. I, I understand you're just mm-hmm. kind of thinking through your thoughts there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I think there there are three ways to kind of make the art, and I'm taking a risk here because I always forget what I'm saying halfway through the list as I number them off, but I'll do my three best. Three ways to make the art. Three ways. Here. I can't do this. Number one, <laughs> you can make it for yourself. You can make the art just to make it and enjoy it and explore yourself and just see what kind of weird thing you can come up with? And then you look at it afterward and you go, huh, that is really weird, but I either enjoyed the process of making it or I feel fulfilled or I learned something about myself, etc." And in that regard, you would never compromise on anything because it is a personal experience and you should only be guided by yourself. At the opposite end of the spectrum, the number three way to make art is to do it you know, financially, as you'd said, where you like, what's the market value of this? How do I get the most people buying tickets to see my movie, etc.? And I have no interest in that what whatsoever. So I, in that in that vein of it, you would try to appeal to a people as much as you could, and you'd maybe take yourself completely out of it because you're just trying to get as many people in seats as possible. Maybe you even lie in the trailer. I don't know, but I I'm not really thinking that way. I think the number two way to make it is to make it to connect with other people. And I think that's where it gets really tricky, where if you're listening only to yourself, you want it to be informed by yourself and your perspective and what you're trying to say. But if you're not factoring into that calculation how people are going to experience and interpret it, the lens they're going to view it through, then you're just making less effective art, in my opinion. So only in that case where you're trying to, your specific purpose is to connect with other people, I think you need to have a little bit of an education in what things work and what things don't and what things really turn people off and prevent people from feeling the way you need them to feel at the end of the second act, et cetera, et cetera. If that makes Mm. sense. It does. And I actually wholeheartedly follow you, except maybe I just have a a little more faith that however harebrained my ideas may get and however particular my stance may get, um, like I'm not a no compromise kind of guy. I used to be. I'm not anymore. but there's a there's an element of I just have more faith that an audience will materialize, even for specific stuff. 
Like I'm, I'm not too worried about because like the decisions I make that make the, the the crowd of that will be interested in the work smaller and smaller. I'm kind of okay with a small crowd, and I'm kind of okay to make those decisions and know that I'm alienating few people or just not connecting with as many people. If I was aiming for universality, I would, I would just have to put less of myself into it. Food is good. That's my movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Eat food. That's a that, that that's a best-selling novel you just read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon where the uh, my personal belief is the smaller the audience you're comfortable with, the more effectively you can connect with them. Yes, because you can absolutely. you can hit them from every side that they can be connected on. We're all so different, and I don't know if anybody's truly unique, but we're all so rare in our own way that if you're appealing to many, many, many people, you have to have diluted something down. Uh, in some way to not turn lots of people off and, and have them not show up to see your thing or listen to it or what happened. Or hit on something particularly universal, something like the Iron Giant. I mean, think about all the specificity in that film, the specificity of time period. It's the Cold War. It's in Maine. Uh, it's a children's animated film. And yet it talks about the eternity of the soul and friendship and you know, family and fucking government paranoia, um, nuclear war. I mean, it, it covers some pretty broad spanning subjects with a very specific, I, like, I think sometimes specificity is universality. Yeah. And I th also think that things are weighed differently depending on what we're talking about, because there are the sure. more, I'll, I'll dare to say superficial elements, such as the time period that a piece takes place in and, you know, the animation style and anything that could be kind of unique and fun about it. It could inform the larger picture, absolutely. But I think that those are elements that aren't very likely to totally turn someone off a movie. Whereas, you know, with The Iron Giant, you have sort of the core message of just you, you get to choose who you are and what you do. And, mm -hmm. you know, you don't nobody gets to tell you like, well, this is what you're destined to do. You just you get to choose for yourself. If I remember correctly, is the core message. of the You movie. are who you choose to be. Yep. Yeah. And I choose to be Superman. <laughs> but uh, if, if that weren't something that could connect with people, you went with something that interested only you or a value only you had, then I think that that movie starts flopping uh, all of a sudden. Okay, so here, here's, I think we finally untangled a little bit, because I think, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to refine, um, like my goal would not be to find a value a very particular value that only I had. I think I would dig down deep into you know myself and discover that there's I have more in common with everybody else than I thought. Like that's what I've discovered more and more of in recent years than a lot of thinking, spending time alone and the conclusion I've come to is that we're really not all that different. And I do I do try to the deeper I you know plow um the more I find that you know, simple universal themes really are um, like, I, I don't know. I can, I can engage with that a lot more. It's not so much like, uh, I, I, I kind of lost it just a little bit, but you, you're right. There are the, the, the setting time period animation style are slightly more superficial choices. Although I would argue that they, the way the iron giant was marketed, uh, did not, it was not successful at the box office and then had a resurgence later in popularity for a reason, which is that its themes were, um, so accessible and so uh, broad-reaching. Um, I think yeah. this is like a bit of a Rubik'sism. This is something that we talk about or have talked about a little bit in the past, but something that we've always 
discussed is that I think, and this is obviously more specifically to do with Doom mapping, but you can extrapolate it out to any creative pursuit. I I don't. I'm not saying you're being disingenuous or anything, or that or that anyone who says I make things for myself is being disingenuous. But if you're making something creative and you know other people are going to consume it and you want other people to see it, I think you're automatically not really creating it for yourself. There's a part of you that wants other people to enjoy it and you want other people to see it and experience it and there's a bit of a hope there that they're going to connect with it. So I I don't know that I don't know that anyone has ever I'm sure there are examples you could you could pick out like anomalous examples but for the most part if you're a creative person and you're putting your work out publicly I think there's a bit of knowledge there that this isn't just for me. So <laughs> I think in that you often even subconsciously are going to sort of pander to specific people and stuff like that anyway. And I think there is a lot of value in what Sobad's discussing of just not, and this like learning to do it without, I suppose like learning to try to connect with other people without detracting from what you want to get out of it. And I think there is usually some middle ground where that's, that is viable, I guess. Yeah, of course. If you if, if you develop an audience, you know they say know your audience. I mean, your audience can just be a group of people that that jives most with with what you things that you care about, um, which can be you know specific or broad reaching. Um, but yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I I've never I, I don't think I've made a thing for myself since I was like fifteen, um, and I, I've steadily you know begun sort of erasing myself from the artistic process i can still like vibrate one way or another like i think this is important or i think this is good or whatever but yeah the effort of you know the creative pursuit is about reaching people i i, I don't want i started off on the like i like i i feel like i got off on, on an aggressive start when i said you know i'm on the side of the tracks where i say you know go fuck yourselves that's not really <laughs> <laughs> That's not really the, the 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 side of the argument that I wanted to take. Um, I just think it's easier to. It's an important part of my life to know who I am, and something. And it's just. I don't know. I, I I hold tightly to things that I know I like, and I don't really. I, I guess I'm not really as as afraid as I used to be that I would lose faith in those things. I used to hold more tightly onto them, and uh, resist reasonable arguments against them before but now i just don't mind so much yeah i think it speaks to something we've talked about a little bit on the podcast before where it's like when you're creating stuff i think you reach a point like i think maybe a lot of us start in that initial point that you're talking about where it's like i'm just making this for me i don't care if anyone likes it blah 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 and then in the case of like a game or or do mapping or whatever you release the thing and you see the feedback and the people who are going to go on to continue to create and to have an enjoyable experience doing it and to connect with people, they're going to look at the feedback and they're going to be able to be willing to like take that in uh, and do something with it. And then as you get further along, I think, in the process is when you reach a point where, okay, these are the things that I'm going to put out for testing that I want, like that. I want feedback on and that I'm likely to make changes to. And then these are the things that I know 
for myself I like and I'm not going to compromise on those particular mm-hmm. things. And I think that segmentation into what I'm willing to compromise on and what I'm not is that kind of nice creative middle ground I think that that you tend to enter after you've sort of gone through the full ex- like creative experience a few times. Yeah. I I have I think the most important thing is like what are you saying fuck you about? Because if it's the, you know, the core message of your film, for example, then I'm 100% with Mount Payne, where if someone says, I don't like that, you say, well, fuck you. I, I like it. That's why I wanted to do it. But if the thing, if the feedback you're getting or the reaction you're getting is, you know, I'm not, I don't like that because I don't understand what you're doing. You're not communicating mm-hmm. this to me clearly, et cetera. Maybe I would be on board if I, if the scene made any sense to me, but it wasn't. That would be a bad time to say, well, fuck you, just on print. Not that Mount Payne would ever do this, but just on principle, like, you don't like my thing, so get out of here. I don't like anyone who doesn't like my thing. It should be of more course. of a, oh, why is this not working for you? Let's diagnose the problem, fix it, so we can see if you actually are on my side. And then if we know for sure and you aren't, then I get to say, fuck you, you just don't like what I like. Um, so it's it's very there are definitely appropriate times where you should it's the purity of what you're going for that's you shouldn't be compromising on or it's just not the work of art you set out to make but we shouldn't be confusing that with thing just genuine mistakes you've made in communicating sure. your message yeah and you've got to be talking to the right people too like yes talking to the right people about the right things like I think if you know okay well these people like the same types of things that I like uh they're going to understand the core values and the core message of like what I'm creating. Uh, like in the case of a do map and I send it to like, you know, Sobat or, or Rubik's Omega or somebody who I know it's like, we play the same stuff. We enjoy the same gameplay and they're just going to point out the things that hinder their experience, which is like hinder their ability to reach the level of enjoyment that I would if I was like playing this myself. Mm-hmm. So really they're just looking out for things that are like fundamentally broken or, you know, elements that uh, are going to cause issues with like being able to enjoy the thing that I'm creating as opposed to, oh, well, like this, this is too hard. I don't really like hard stuff. Uh, <laughs> like that is invaluable feedback to me. <laughs> so right, of a course, lot of definitely. it is like, understanding when the feedback is useful and and understanding when it's like coming from a place of oh well this person just doesn't get the same art that that i'm trying to put out you know one of my pitfalls is um showing stuff that i've made that i really care about to someone who is close to me and i love them very much but they don't get that medium or that thing at all (laughs) and i'm like what do you think and they're like uh well i'm not really a music like i'm not really a music connoisseur so it sounds kind of dark like i don't know i don't know (laughs) like they they want to say nice things but they can't give constructive criticism or even really be authentically positive because they wouldn't want to lie and just be cheery like it's not my mom (laughs) obviously she (laughs) no matter what i send her or whatever i show her it's you're 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 great sweetheart you know it's wonderful um but i'm talking about like i don't know a good example is like if i send a midi to my brother he'll be like that was fine or he won't respond or just, you know, it's, I don't know. I just, I, I put too much stock in, I, I don't have my devoted group of testers or proofreaders or anything like that. 
I guess you have to kind of work on that throughout your life, but not being a tremendously social person uh, and having a few people who you desperately care about and want to show them all everything, um, you sometimes reach you reach inaccurate conclusions about how good a thing is based on someone didn't react perfectly to the thing you sent them, and then you think it's total shit, when that's clearly not the case. Like, this is a 100% of a me anecdote. It has nothing to do with the creative process, broadly speaking, but I, I wonder if, um, if you two guys ever wish that you could um, connect with people who don't understand the medium you're working in, uh, despite the fact that you, you love and care for these people and they love and care for you. Yeah, I well, mean, I think cooking is like actually kind of like, it's very much like that in terms of people are very like adverse to, <laughs> I mean, it's a very like, there's a lot of visceral elements to cooking that aren't necessarily part of other, you know, I mean, I don't know if I would call cooking an art form. It can be, I guess. Uh, but I think people will be like, oh, these two flavors shouldn't go together. Or I don't like this vegetable. Like, I don't like eating pumpkin or whatever. But they've only ever had pumpkin cooked one way, you know. So you can present them with pumpkin cooked a totally different way and they might enjoy it. And I think... A lot of the time with creative stuff, I think there is value in bringing like stuff to people who might not enjoy that specific thing, as long as you're going into it understanding their perspective from the outset, and then you can pick out the pieces of feedback that are actually useful, uh, rather than being concerned with, oh, well, they don't like it, uh, so it must be bad, as opposed to, well, they don't like it, but they like these other things that are very different to this and they weren't likely to like it to begin with. So what criticisms can I take away? Like what didn't they like about it that I can then use to maybe cater to that type of person a little bit more without taking away from sort of the parts that I don't want to compromise on. Or they do like it and you go, oh shit. They wouldn't like it. Yeah. yeah, there's three things you got to do. Count them up, okay? Oh Here are God. the three tips. That's another so bad top three. Number one, <laughs> you have to yeah find the right people for the right things because you're risking wasting your time if you ask the wrong crowd. Uh, and it does take a long time to collect the people that you need uh, for various things. Who do I go to for music feedback? Who do I go to for game design feedback? Who do I go to for food feedback of a recipe i made etc you know uh so you you have to watch out for those people take note when you find them and then keep them in mind like oh this person really likes this thing and can articulate their thoughts on what they like about it well so i'll use them for this the second thing you need to do is you need to train people to be honest and forthcoming with you which almost no one will do by default and it really is on you if you're not getting honest, good feedback, if you are, if someone's saying like, hey, I think this sucks and you're just like, well, it doesn't. So you're dumb, <laughs> right? If you're, if there's any hint of that energy in your response, people will not be honest with you. And they're always going to start by default with not being completely honest with you. So you need to be so open to the negative feedback, so receptive of the criticism and so genuinely interested in it. They're like, I'm not sure I like this. You go, oh, why is that? Tell me more about that. I'm, I'm re I would really like to hear what you didn't like about that. Just be invincible. And people will eventually learn that they can be honest with you and it's going to be okay. And you'll Just start getting be better invincible. feedback. 
Just be invincible. I, that's my genuine advice. I've given that to people in my day-to-day -day life. It could take years, but learn to separate yourself from the thing that you are asking for a critique on. It's not you that's being criticized. It's you are both standing at the same side of the room, looking at the same canvas. You're on the same team, and you should both be saying, what's working here and what's not? You should never be saying, hey, how did I do? Fucking stupid question. No one will give you good feedback if you make it about yourself. They're just going to be too worried about your feelings. And number three, you got to get yourself a Dave. You need a Dave in your life who will just fuck you up if that's what you deserve at that moment. So if you ever out. find a Dave, no Dave, <laughs> you hold on, <laughs> hold on to your Dave. I sent when I wrote that theme. Well, one of the versions of the theme song for this podcast, which I maintain is not very good. I sent it to Dave. I like it. And uh, that's kind of you to say. I appreciate it. I had no idea how to write a theme song. It's not my genre. But I sent it to Dave and Dave listened to it. And he said, I'll try to get the quote as tight as I can. Uh, he said, wow, you know, it's been a really long time, but I don't like that at all. <laughs> 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 and, it's and he set me straight. And what we have, I'm not like excited about what i've done with the theme song here but it is like a hundred times better than it was before i sent it to dave okay you know? but you need a dave who you actually trust to have a valuable yeah. opinion because a guy who you send a thing to who says i don't like that at all could also be completely useless to you so definitely definitely that's why number one of on the list is so number important. one number one <laughs> <laughs> I have I, a question for the two of you. If if, if you're oh, I'm if you're not finished, oh, okay. we'll ask the okay. questions. No, no, no. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Don't kick me off. Um. So more specifically, do either of you? I've heard this theory that um creators of all kinds have uh, a private audience. It can be one person. It can be mostly. It's usually very few people or or one person, whom they secretly hope likes everything they make and they sort of secretly make everything for um you don't have to name who it is but i i can say definitively that there is one person whom um if i don't if if they don't like it what i make or if they are you know neutral about it that will hurt more than all the positive youtube comments on the planet um so and 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 the thing is like these private audiences don't tend to choose their position they don't they, they don't ask for it and you don't choose them you just sort of bumble into them um and that because and you can practice you know distancing yourself from the private audience's opinion and 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 you know focus on tangibly like is this good you know do people tend to like it whatever um but you can't help but be affected by the private audience's response. So I'm wondering if, if the two of you have one of those. That is an interesting question. No. <laughs> <laughs> what a relief. <laughs> I, uh, uh, I don't think I ever find myself hoping someone likes something. I always only want to find out if it is likable or if it needs to change to become likable. But it's like, the, the positive feedback isn't any better or more important or more happily received than the negative feedback. I just want the feedback so I can diagnose and repair and make something better. Like Dave's my guy, but I'm not like, oh my God, I hope Dave likes this. 
it just never happens. I wonder if Dave likes this is, is all mm-hmm. I ever experience. Um, so that, that's really interesting that you have that, but I, it's, uh, it's not really how my brain works. I think creatively to like hope that someone likes something. I just always want to make that thing better. So if they like it, it's done. But if they don't like it, then I just improve it until it's done. And there's, it sounds like you have an emotional investment where if they don't like it, you're like, oh no. And I don't have that. If that's the spirit of the question. And yes, certainly it's not with any particular person. Yeah, it's definitely like an emotional. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not going to. I don't, I don't want to pull out a pejorative noun for it. I wanted to say tripwire, but it's more like a. <laughs> It, it 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 has a it has a yeah it has my heart on speed dial that person's reaction interesting i think yeah i don't know for me i i wouldn't say i necessarily have have ever really had that experience specifically like i definitely don't make things for someone uh like so that i can get their opinion and then be like oh that thank yeah that's God the other like thing is thing. it you're almost never actually making stuff for that person. You're just making stuff, and then that person ends up being the audience that you care more about right. what they think than anybody else. Yeah. Well, I mean, definitely, like when when I started releasing stuff, and then started, I suppose, getting into the inner circles a little bit of the slaughter sort of. Uh, scene i suppose there were definitely people who i like i respect their opinions and stuff and i like tourniquet and and rubik's obviously and and people like that and i was like oh I, like obviously i hoped that they would like it because they make good stuff and and they would have a good understanding of what was good and you know it would be nice if they liked it um and maybe i was a little bit more like that at the beginning where i was like oh i really hope this person likes it because i respect their opinion but like I, I said, like I've gotten to a point now where I'm a lot more comfortable in the fact that okay, I've made some stuff before and I think it was pretty decent and I'm happy with it and it's at a level where now I'm like, well if they don't like it and they give me good reasons, then I will sort of if it's like a mechanical problem or whatever, then I know I can work with that feedback and change it. Like Rubik's is very like if I send him something, he will just be like Oh, like these textures are wrong. This looks bad. Uh, <laughs> this fight doesn't really work because of these elements. Uh, and usually, like he's pretty correct. Like he's pretty spot on. He's really good at giving feedback. And I'll be like, "Yeah, I'll change these things." But I will still be like, "There are still times where he will give me feedback, and I'll be like, well, I don't necessarily agree with this, and I'm, I'm not willing to compromise on that thing. Like I like it, and I think it works, so I'm going to leave it." even though I respect his opinion, you know? Hmm. I need to take notes from you guys. You sound like you have very healthy uh, creative approaches. <laughs> I think most of my creative uh, life has been dramatically unhealthy and continues to be, especially since it's kind of like at a standstill outside of YouTube. Um, but yeah, um, I'm, I'm taking notes. I'm taking suggestions. Well, I, I spent so much time being a hypersensitive little whiny baby about things that I would make and send That's to people. True. And then I'd, I'd get the, yeah, like this was last weekend. And uh, <laughs> every and week with would, the podcast, I swear. <laughs> I would get the negative feedback and it would destroy me. You know, if I, if I wrote a song at 19 and 
any fucking anybody didn't like it. I don't even know. They could be a stranger. I don't even know their taste in music. They didn't like it. It would eat me alive. And you just, well, I reach a point where I think this can't continue this way. It's not effective. It's not helpful. It doesn't feel healthy. It's not, I'm not making better art because of it. It's just a painful experience and just had to learn over several years that there is too much of me in this feedback process and I'm not invested enough solely in I want this thing to be better because if you want desperately for the thing to be better then you will you'll put yourself in front of a cannon if that solves the problem you know if the if the blood spatter improves the painting like it's just it it started off with I'm willing to feel like shit if it makes the work better and then you do that enough that it turns into eventually years later that I don't even feel like shit anymore I genuinely my only interest is in having the work be improved. And there's no... Because I think secretly what was going on at the time was like, if this person likes this thing, then they like me. And if they don't like the thing, then they don't like me. I think that was the thread going on under the surface. And I think that that's nonsense and really stupid. And so it was an active effort over years and years and years, uh, working very closely with Dave. To uh, <laughs> to just to just iron that out to beat Dr. that out Dave. of yourself and uh, and get there. So it's I, I I'm pretty confident unless it's just like by coincidence I grew up and my brain developed and my chemical reactions and my meat in my skull changed. But it really <laughs> felt like I was accomplishing it on purpose, like saying I will be less invested. And if someone says, "Hey, this joke isn't funny," I'll just go, "Okay, there's now a possibility this joke isn't funny." So why not? How could it be better? And then when that became more effective, it was like, oh, yeah, this is the way to do it. And it just well, gets you easier kind of, over time. You kind of build up like confidence in a medium too, right? Like if I'm new to something, I'm probably going to be and maybe less confident in it than I, I might. I think I would probably be more sensitive than something that I'm, I'm a bit better at and maybe have a bit more, a bit more of an understanding of where I'm going right and where I'm going wrong. Um, because there is that kind of, uh, there's that period where you start to get okay at something and then <laughs> you start to think you're a bit better than you are. And that's the danger period for everybody, I think. Um, and obviously with creative stuff, it's difficult to tell because it's like such a subjective thing. But like with writing, for instance, if I send a piece of writing to someone, that's a much more emotionally difficult thing for me than sending someone a doom map not that it not because doom maps are more throwaway necessarily but there's obviously a bit more of an emotional investment in, in writing uh for me i think um and i think that is generally like that would be more challenging uh creatively for me hmm. boy yeah um <laughs> talk about extricating your self-worth from uh the, re the reception to the things you make you gotta I, I might have to start doing that today like that's <laughs> <laughs> i mean that is i that's almost impossible i think and so well, bad's gonna fully, but so bad's gonna pretend that he doesn't care what anyone thinks about about his releases or something i'm sure but if you release something and it's universally loathed i think you're probably <laughs> not gonna have a very good time like you're probably right. gonna be like like you might be able to be objective enough to be like oh well i must have made a lot of faults here or whatever and i would suspect yeah. that you probably 
if something's universally loathed, you probably knew during the creation of it that there were problems or whatever, <laughs> I would assume, yeah. depending on what it is. And this changes per per medium, I guess, right? Because, like, mm. painting on a canvas is a bit different. There's, there are structural elements, but a lot of people aren't going to notice those structural elements all that much. Uh, it's a bit more difficult. Like, it's, again, a bit more of a visceral thing of, like, uh, people's reaction to it anyway so it's going to be different so. per medium but i think um sorry so bad this just distracted me from my point <laughs> <laughs> i just disagree with your assessment of uh of my character and future reactions to these things i i, I don't feel that i'm pretending at all i really think i could put something out and if it was universally panned uh i'm, I'm not taking that personally I mean, other than like, this is tricky because if the if I if that was my finding out that the work sucked, then I'm like, oh shit, that sucked, and I didn't know. So I I would I might feel bad about that if I was really thinking it was good, and I'm finding out that I made well, it. <laughs> well, surely that is part and parcel of of the thing. But it's not. Right? It's not that like people don't like like it's not that people don't like it. People don't like me. Like, it feels no worse than if the next day I looked at it again, and I was like, oh, shit, this sucks. It would feel exactly as bad. It, there's the, it doesn't matter. A thousand people could be saying that it's the worst thing ever. But what if you thought no it worse. was really good? Like, this is the best thing you've made. You really thought, like, I have, this is the best thing I will ever make. This is, I think this is really good. And then yeah. you release this thing, and people are like, this fucking sucks. Like, this is terrible. Like... I can't imagine that you're going to be able to just immediately step back and be like, hmm, they're making some salient points. Uh. <laughs> oh, no, I could. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> We're at a stalemate That's, here. Uh, I think, I think I mean, my psychosis is I have to know the why. I, to go back to the thing I mistakenly assigned as Mount Payne's viewpoint, but that idea that, like, if you find out that something you love is bad and maybe you don't want to know, I have to know. Okay, but I you're saying to. you find out something is bad. As if yeah. not in all cases do I believe that a thing is... <laughs> I, there's, I don't think there's an objective good and bad necessarily in all cases. I think there are objective sure. elements. Like, there are objective elements to a film, you know, like the way it's edited, the way it's shot. Uh the dialogue, the way it's performed. There are a lot of elements where you, like, if you look at the room or something, you can look at that film and be like, this guy and the actors in this film and the way the script's written, they're doing something wrong. Like, <laughs> there are elements <laughs> in this thing that just don't work functionally. But then, you know, you can have other films where it's a lot more ambiguous, where one person can say, this worked beautifully. I think this shot was really cool, I liked the way this was edited. And then another person could be on the complete opposite end of that and say, the editing was terrible, and, you know, like, the you could literally have two completely opposite opinions about a piece of art like that. And where's the objective truth, uh, like, about, you know, the form and function there? I, don't, I just don't... I think... I think you could have a scenario where... I think this thing's really good that I created and that I release. And there are a lot of people who say they hate it and they could be wrong. 
to hate it. <laughs> like they could be incorrect and I could be correct. And I mm-hmm. think I don't know if it's necessarily more correct creatively to always assume that the people who hate the thing are right to hate it. Yeah, no, you wouldn't do that. But I'm just like, if if you are pretty sure it's good and everyone else says it sucks, is that hurting your feelings? Or is it they say it sucks and you realize you agree? And is or is that what's hurting your feelings? Or is it just that people are saying it sucks? Like, where is like, I just in different cases, you know. It could be one or the other. See, I, I I think there's a point at which if you put enough of yourself into a thing and you spend enough time on a thing and you know you worked hard on a thing and then everybody still hates it and you look again at the thing now knowing that everybody hates it and you reappraise it, I, I, I don't think I could, if I, before I released a thing, I could be, you know, shaking with trepidation, but still quite certain that this is exactly how I wanted it to go. And then if people just they they can they can give me a laundry list of reasons why they don't like it, I I still I think it's important to have an innate confidence that if before you release it, you're satisfied with it, then you sh- at the end of the day you should still be satisfied with it to some extent. You can maybe change your approach with the next one, but there's no like there's no changing something that you before release and after getting feedback from your you know close confidants there's there shouldn't be any like waffling based on public opinion after the fact this is i think the core of what we're kind of button heads on here the three of us is that i mean earlier you two seemed fairly in agreement over this idea that people don't really make art for themselves and i mm-hmm. i disagree completely I, I think i absolutely very often make art only for myself even if i'm putting it out in the world Sometimes it just art doesn't feel done because you could always change it until mm. you put it out there. And now there's a record of it. Now, now it's done and you've locked it in. So it's just part of a process of when is the art done? <clears throat> and it's finally the thing that it is for many different art forms. That's like for a YouTube video. It's when you upload the video. Because if you leave it in the editor on your desktop, you can just change it whenever you want. So it's a living document. So there, there are lots of reasons that someone might put something out publicly without actually having the goal be like, I want other people to like this. You know, it could be only for yourself. But I think the thing is that if I, if I built a table, like I'm, not, I'm no carpenter. So if I tried my absolute hardest and I spent like a year learning carpentry and then I built a, built a table, I sat down on it and I dropped my breakfast tray on the table and the whole table collapsed, that could be described as a negative feeling if you're like oh man i I thought i nailed that like i don't understand what i did wrong there could be confusion you could realize you overestimated your ability etc but it's not necessarily like you're not necessarily really feeling down about yourself i guess you could but there's no there's no other people involved in that it's just the work didn't go how you thought it had gone and that's the extent of it. So when you're talking about like, you know, a thousand, my thing I put out is universally panned by the audience. That's just a table collapsing for me. It doesn't matter if I'm just finding out through people, but it's no, it's no worse just because the people are there. I just think it's interesting that you, you always seem to default to a functional element going wrong. Though. Yeah. yeah. I'm not talking say, about function necessarily. Like, if, if I really... release a, a game and it's got a bug in it, and oh, fuck, everyone hates it because there's a big bug in it, yeah, that's, you know, yeah. that's, a, that's a different scenario. But if it's like, I release this thing and I really, like, here's the story I've developed and it's centered around something very close to me and, and you know, I don't know. 
it's more about the I would I guess like there's something that I maybe want from an artist where there should be some amount of irrationality to their love of what they're creating because <laughs> I think I, I think then once like it shouldn't always be about well I need to make sure that like these elements are tweaked so that like the lighting's good in this scene and you know it's not necessarily all about uh the building blocks structurally of what makes a good film or, or whatever it is right craftsmanship only goes so far yeah there has to be some kind of ambiguity there has to be some kind of i don't know where this came from or why i thought of this line the way the way i wrote it on the page but it's gonna say that way because it just sounds right to me in a way i can't explain you have to have some moments like that and i also i just i think i follow your um your analogy to a certain extent when it comes to the table, but I, I could never, <laughs> yeah, clearly like there's a difference between, Oh, I left a, a, a one second chunk of blackness in the middle of my feature film that wasn't supposed to be there. Whoops. And you know, people didn't like the way I structured the film chron like non chronologically. And now they're walking out of the theater. Like I meant to do that. They just didn't like the way that that made them feel. And then that sucks for me. Cause I wanted them to like it. But it's not the same thing as having a dining room table collapse under your breakfast platter. Oh, interesting. See, those are the same thing in my mind. I, to me, hmm. those are both functional errors. Hmm. But it's not, but it's an, not error. an error. If you, yeah, exactly. <laughs> At all. Well, if, well it, it depends like what it, your goals are, right? That, that's all yeah. I'm saying. We're coming back. I think this is why I was misunderstanding. Is we're coming back to this, when do you say, fuck you? So yeah. Yeah. If, the, yeah. if my story is about acclimating with... Or, or rejecting this idea that we should all be, you know, very thankful that we get to die because, oh, to live forever would be torture. Like, let's say my core thesis of my film is a rejection of that. And I'm just <laughs> You've saying, been having no, some nightmares so bad. Was <laughs> I wrote a short film on this one, so we're getting real here. Okay. Um, if, if, if that, if people are seeing that and they're like, that's stupid, I don't like it, or I'm bored, or this isn't interesting, etc. Uh, that's a fuck you moment for me. I'm like, well, but, mm -hmm. but this is important to me. But I'm not hurt by that. If they're walking out of the theater, I'm just like, oh, I, they don't agree or they don't feel this way. And I might mm -hmm. be perplexed. Like, how can you not feel this way? It seems so obvious to me. But that's, a, that's, a, that's not a functional error. That's a, that's a fuck you error. But if it comes down to, like, people aren't liking my movie because, yeah, the chronology is all told out of order, and I thought that that would con uh, communicate something very interesting to the audience... And it's failing to do that. It's just confusing them. Then in my mind, that's a functional mistake. If I was like, I think this will be an effective way to tell the story. Oh, I was wrong. That's functional. So that, that's well, if that makes sense. I feel sense. like you get deep into semantics of this kind of thing. Because well, I, I, well, yeah, it's a fine line. Something like Memento gets critically praised for jumbling up its chronology and then other movies don't do it as well as memento did so it's kind of like it's a good choice in some situations and not a good choice in other situations and yeah you do get more into subjectivity territory when it's like roughly equivalently good movies but i, I do see i think i think i finally fully see where you're coming from and i i think we disagree less than it appears <laughs> yeah memento's a dope as shit movie that that's awesome it, because it's the, the the whole point of the out of chronology there is that you get to share the perspective of the character that you exactly. can't remember what came before this. So that ends up working. Uh, but I don't know. It's just, I, it might just be my analytical psychosis, but I really feel, 
I've felt all my life that art is just science we're not very good at yet. And that if wow. something's not working, I, I really do feel that way, that there is an answer for why it's not working. And if it comes <laughs> down to they just don't share that value, then that's a fuck you moment. But if it comes down to anything else, then that's something you could have structured or communicated better. But then that fuck you moment existing kind of doesn't that just kill the hypothesis that it's science? Uh, if you no. if you believe fundamentally that there are moments that you shouldn't compromise on because they're subjective, then it's not a science. No, default. because I'm I would be thinking that art is the science of communicating these ideas. So if I have successfully mm -hmm. communicated the idea and they don't like the idea, then we just disagree on that idea. That has nothing to do with the art. Whereas the but how art do you is, know you successfully communicated it? Right, we're not very good at that science yet, is what I'm saying. Well, I'm saying if you communicated it successfully to three people, you communicated it successfully. That just might be the size of your audience. Well, exactly. Yeah, that's that's the other problem. That's what I was going to say next, is like, let's say you show this film about, about uh, you know, not wanting to live forever or whatever, and a yeah. hundred people hate it, but 15 fucking love it, and it's like their favorite film, and they really yes, connected yeah. and resonated with it. To me, it's more important to connect with those 15 people. Yeah, but so that but it's a very interesting question of did they connect with it because they have some additional context in their brain from their life experiences that I also have that's allowing them to read between the lines better than other people and if I could include that context in the movie would it then have resonated with all 100 people? Oh, Is it did wow. they just need a little extra work behind how I'm communicating this. Yeah, but then what if putting in this extra work, you lose those 15 people and you yeah, gain the other right. 85? Yeah, that would be, you know, a very confusing problem to solve. It'd be like you fix one <sighs> bug and you cause another. But that, that like that happens. But when... it sounds like your goal then is like, oh, man, I got to make this appeal to 100 percent of people because that would Not be the perfect science, like in terms well, yeah. of getting this to a science. Well, this movie has to hit all of these targets and then connect with absolutely everybody on the planet that should be your ultimate goal if right that would be the scientific end to it i i agree with the spirit of what you're saying so i'll i'll say i agree to the extent that there's a subset of people who this message will really resonate with and the science of the art would be done perfectly when all of that subset of people can successfully connect with the idea of this movie because it has everything in it that they would need to to get there but you could draw the line like you could Say like, oh, they don't speak English, so you can't make the movie in English, and you might not. That might not be worthwhile. Like you but can. But then you could keep drawing lines. Yeah, of course. But then, <laughs> but then you draw lines all the way down to that fifteen people. Oh well, they well, didn't you, have the context to appropriate to understand. Well, then, yeah, then it just becomes subjective again, fundamentally. I'm not sure that it's subjective, but I think I understand what you're saying. Well, but if you're drawing your own lines based on arbitrary things, then I think it's, it is subjective. But I think you're changing the goal behind the work rather than the efficacy of the work to achieve that goal. So I'm saying I don't want to appeal to as many people as possible. I just want to appeal to those 15. That's before the art takes place, right? So it's, if my goal is to uh, appeal to those 15 well, people as effectively as possible... Then the science no. behind the art needs to change. No, no, no. The the goal is to create a thing you want to create, and then you incidentally appeal to those fifteen people. You're not you're not setting out with the goal of I'm trying to appeal to a, a specific, you know, percentage of the population. 
I, I, I mean, at least I think you should just make the thing you want to make, the thing that feels true to you, and then you, you, you responded with, to Nirvana's prompts, like, yes, if, if, if there was a thing, if I could add context and get the other 85 after initially appealing to the 15, then I'd make that change. But I think the, the original 15 you, you grab is just you naturally, organically connecting to other people, which I think is much more precious than manually uh, making adjustments and calibrating properly to get the other 85. I think it's a dangerous thing to be so firm on because we have to, we have to ask, like, what is the context that's missing that would help these 85 more people? Because if it's like, oh, one more line of dialogue right here would have made that completely clear for people who didn't intuit it and we lose nothing, then I would think, isn't that just objectively better? One tiny little little tinkering and the film affects the same 15 people just as effectively, but 85 oh, more. Yeah, clearly you want to make those like tiny proportional measured adjustments. But yeah, I mean, what, what we hear is I want to make the adjustments necessary to reach the other 85 no matter the size or consequence to the original 15. Yeah. So it's, yeah. So, which I don't agree with. I wouldn't agree with that either. So I was arguing from this. I, I was assuming that our shared goal was like reaching as many people as possible. But as you've said, the goal could be, I want to make this art for me. And then it just happens to, you know, resonate with some people, in which case you only need to make the art as effective as it needs to be for yourself. So then the, the science becomes just how do I make this the best artistic experience and process for me in this moment? Grow the most from it, be the happiest with it, etc. But it's just because, you know, something can get a little wishy-washy and how many people it affects, you know, versus how many it doesn't and the amount of tweaking you do to grab more people. Like, it's no less scientific in that regard, in my opinion. Like, you could... What's a good example? You could make a... You, you could make a medicine that it cures a disease in a certain percentage of people, and then you could alter that, that medicine to cure the disease in a larger number of people, but also cause more side effects in people that it does mm. cure. And so it just comes down to what your goals are, but nobody's going to say that like manufacturing pharmaceuticals isn't a science at, with, with testable hypotheses, and if we make this change, it yields this effect. That's all science in my brain, and that's all That is very an functional. entirely different discussion, the give and take and the <laughs> side effects in pharmaceuticals is, I do not think, analogous at all to appealing to people with a film. No, um, I, don't, it, I don't really agree. Okay, that's fair. I think, I think the problem is that you're maybe taking... You're taking away the fact that like the the human element of the audience where people might just <laughs> not like the thing for totally irrational reasons and this is this is one thing i always think about with like film reviews for instance uh i've sat down to watch films before and based on the context of like i'm sitting on the uh, in a less comfortable position i've had a harder day there are a thousand trillion different elements going on that lead to the mood I'm in when I watch that film and how I and that's going to affect how I perceive that film there are so many different reasons for why I might then watch that movie and be like I didn't enjoy that experience and I've had this before where I've watched 
a film in one context and not enjoyed it, and I've come back and watched it again, and I, I enjoyed the film on the second watch. Yeah. And I think that there are just so many factors that are even, like, completely external to the experience itself as to why somebody might not enjoy a film that I just think you can't... Uh, <laughs> I don't think you can be like, well, if I tweaked this, then we'd gain this many more people. And I think that's sort of uh, one of the major problems with the sort of assessment that it, it's a science. Well, you're describing something incredibly complex, but that doesn't make it unscientific. And let's also be careful not to make the mistake that I'm trying to communicate something as well as I can in like simple terms. And by virtue of doing that, I'm going to oversimplify and give you an example that's like not technically exactly the thing. But it's just this idea that like, I don't see any reason to believe that if we could somehow know we had a scan of your brain thousands of years from now, and we knew your entire life history in a, in a computer database somewhere, we had every moment you'd ever lived and how you felt in that moment and the chemicals that fired in your brain. And we had all that data on billions and billions of people that we could cross-reference and analyze. I don't see how we couldn't arrive at a point in this crazy sci-fi future where a computer could predict this is the painting that under these circumstances will give you the strongest emotional reaction you could ever have from a painting. Like that's what I'm talking about, that it's science. Like we're electrical signals in our brains and we'll never get here ever, almost certainly. But I don't see what's happening here that's magical that couldn't one day be explained by science when we're all we're all electrons and, and protons and, and atoms and, you know, like it's science all the way up until it gets so, so, so complicated that we, we're, we can't understand what's happening anymore. Or it's really hard to predict, but that doesn't make it any less scientific in my mind. So that's, that's the crux of the we're not very good at this yet. So it's always like, man, you just can't account for taste. You just, oh, that person was having a bad day, so they didn't enjoy this movie as much as they should have. But had you known that and known that person and known that circumstance, maybe you could have predicted okay, that. Okay, sure, but well, my follow-up question is then, how useful actually is that information? <laughs> even, if, <laughs> even if you're saying, even if you extrapolate things out to that high of a degree of like, oh, well, you know, like, if I had a supercomputer that was running uh, constantly, that was assessing every single person's reactions at all time. <laughs> I, I could create a film that would appeal to you know, you know like ninety nine point nine percent of the population, you know, and, and that would be you know the what I think film, is you know you know what I think is magical is that yeah. you could tell a human being you're about to watch a movie that we mapped your brain and we mined every experience you've ever had, and what you're about to watch is going to affect you so much, <laughs> and he'll say fuck you, no it won't, and he'll decide not to like it. <laughs> yeah you definitely that, don't tell them beforehand well uh, yeah but if you country. did a human can decide to say it didn't affect me i don't like it <laughs> that's mm -hmm. the human element I and think, that yeah i think my concern also is i just that, i just no, go ahead. oh sorry no you finish your point i just wanted to say as an aside so about what you what you are describing sounds like magic to me which is why i found it i chuckled in the middle not laughing at you just the idea of the i mean literal science fiction description it sounds like Oh, that sure. amount of knowledge, that amount of whatever. Like, that's what we call colloquially magic. I mean, magic isn't really magic. It's just stuff you can't explain. So, of course, science oh, totally. yeah. defeats all magic because magic is, is not actually magic. It's just a description of miracles and 
unexplained phenomena. Of course. Um, and also being able to cast spells and wave wands and wear a hat. You know, that's that, that fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, and um, you can laugh just, at me too. That's totally fine. No, I wasn't I wasn't laughing at you. I I I, I it's it's fascinating because I do think this is the perfect kind of composition for a conversation like this is you have a much more scientific brain than I have. And I translate most of my artistic thoughts, not into scientific terms, but into like most religious terms at this point, mm -hmm. um, just because I am more comfortable uh, with with it. In, I mean, I'm not comfortable in moments where I can't explain what's going on, but I think it's a, important as a human being to be able to sit with discomfort and lack of explanations. And that's that's what I'm leaning towards, because that feels more right to me in my meaty heart. <laughs> yeah. So. And that's absolutely your right to do. And you should do it if that brings you more satisfaction in life. Mm -hmm. than as should you. you as, as should you your way. Yeah. To just so quickly answer Nirvana's excellent question, which I do think is very important, um, where it's question. like, yeah, you extrapolate, you know, the sci-fi mm -hmm. concept out and you can, yeah predict that exactly what's the point what's the utility of thinking that and that's a great question and the answer is just simply that it just helps ground me and my emotional reactions to these things where it helps me view it as some a mistake was made that could have been very hard to predict because this is an incredibly complicated scenario could have been totally out of my hands with the lack of information that i have but it helps me to always stay humble about what i'm doing and saying hey Instead of feeling bad about this thing that's not working, I can try to figure out a mistake that I must have made somewhere or uh, an unsolvable problem given the, the information that I have and had at the time that it's just there's nothing to feel bad about. There was no. Yeah, no I mean, like, I out. guess I'm saying, like, <laughs> what, what mistake was made in the script to make Gary had too long of a day <laughs> at work? Uh, and his boss yelled at him a whole bunch, and then that's the context he chose to watch your film under. Like, yeah, nothing. Where was the so mistake? You, there isn't one. Yeah, exactly. So you can't so appeal to, to Gary in that moment. There's no possible way to appeal to Gary because he's coming into the thing feeling a certain way already, and he was never going to enjoy your film. And in fact, yeah, he only fact he was barely paying attention. But he's going to tell people, <laughs> "Oh, I didn't really like that movie." You know what I, I mean? Agree. In fact, in fact, it was Gary who made a mistake at work that prompted his boss to yell at him, and that's why the movie's bad. So it's Gary's fault. Yeah, I, he I agree. Terrible at his job. The just um, in my mind, these are scientific observations. But this just goes back well, to you know, I wouldn't you know worry what about actually, Gary's reaction. You know, it actually doesn't sound very scientific. Is the word mistake though? Oh, that's fair. Mistake is well that that didn't really go like there's like unless you frame a mistake as this didn't evoke the perfect all-encompassing reaction that was desired the, the premise being we want to maximize appeal with the thing maximize human connection etc if it doesn't do that then mistakes were made I, I mean i'd rather call that a bug than a mistake because a mistake implies <laughs> um like like uh intention and i'm saying you can't make a mistake as a creator of something if you intended to you did everything you intended to do that's why i, I mean maybe the word mistake is what makes that feel less uh <laughs> Use more scientific terminology, damn it. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. I, I agree with that. I'm totally on board with that. It's, it's, it's only in your own goals. I want to do this. I think this will be an effective way to do this in this circumstance. And then you get that exact circumstance, and it turns out you were wrong. And it, did, it, it wasn't an effective way to do that thing. Then I would just find that as a mistake. But you're right. The intention has to be there ahead of time. 
or you weren't mistaken, right? It's just something else entirely. I think that shifts the conversation quite massively, in my opinion. It makes your Uh-oh. opinion more acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, it's all, it's all based from here's my goal. If it didn't work, there must be an explanation for that. And that explanation could be Gary had a shitty day at work. But to me, that's, that's the scientific explanation. I would just then realize, oh, then that doesn't matter. That's not a variable I'm trying to control for in this experiment. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, that's all. Um, I guess we have run very, very long here. Um, I almost was able to interject the thing about how nostalgia is another example of how you get irrational audience behavior. You have a kid in the audience who loves a movie that everybody else in the audience is like, fuck is this what am i watching and then the kid remembers it very fondly later on and um it was because he's a kid and has never seen a movie before and just liked what he saw um yeah yeah, yes exactly forcefully bring this full circle before you well yeah (laughs) and then what happens when as a as a filmmaker then it's like oh well i need to tap into this irrationality in order to make this work so we're going to release nostalgia baity content Yeah. So then you're Star hedging on irrationality of human beings to uh, fuel the function of your film. Which, what a mistake. Instead of capitalizing on old nostalgia, make new nostalgia. The reason why Star Wars is so nostalgic is because it was such a, such a big new thing at the time. We need more big new things, not big new regurgitations. But that's yes, just please. me on my soapbox. More like Star yes, Snores, am I right? <laughs> time is accelerating so much as i age that like a remake for a game will come out and i'll be like this just came out last year why is there a remake of this game and then you realize that it was like crazy long ago that's wild stuff yeah i think we've pretty much figured out art today so that was good yeah we should constructive yeah just it's good you guys had me here it's a simple yeah. series of experiments, and it will all be known. <laughs> just got to crunch the numbers. You can do them at home. All you got to do is crunch the numbers. Just need some it's baking a- soda and a, and a <laughs> tiny volcano and Tom Hanks to throw into it. Absolutely. Yeah. That, you know what? I have been dying to know. Who, who wins, uh, Joe or the volcano? Uh, Joe. Joe. Volcano oh, sinks into the ocean and Joe survives. Oh, that's good to know. I like a plucky hero. You like that movie. I like self-aware Deus Ex Machina. It's weird to me that the guy who wrote that also wrote Doubt with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Meryl Streep. I don't think I've seen that, but I like both of those actors, so maybe I should. Oh yeah, it's it's a, well, it's a super serious button-down drama about uh, Catholic priests doing things they shouldn't, oh. um, and doubt, religious doubt. Oh, I have heard so, of the movie. Yeah. Oh yeah, the prequel to Mrs. Doubtfire. No. Oh. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's definitely true. <laughs> yeah. We'll, Boy, we'll look it up off the air. True. Just to save Mount Pain the embarrassment, we'll look it up off the air. Okay. okay. We'll take that <laughs> offline. Well, Mount Pain, thank you so, so much for coming to hang out and having a very tangential conversation about whatever we didn't have planned to have a conversation about. Yeah, it was great. It was a lot of fun. It was great talking to you guys. Thank you for having me on. I really, I really appreciate it and I'm glad to have been here. We were glad to have you. And <laughs> with that, goodbye, everybody. <laughs> Has to have the last word. Uh, I just hope survey cuts it like halfway through.